Uh, this morning, it's my guess that there's some people who are here today, maybe you, maybe friends, maybe family members, who are kind of in a place where their faith has begun to dwindle. There might be somebody here today that you know that trials are supposed to strengthen you. We've had so many great messages from Scripture, from, even from the pastors of this church recently, about trials, and you know that they're supposed to strengthen you, and yet you feel like they're breaking you. I know that there's people here uh, who your sphere of influence, the people that you work with, the people you spend time with, they're so calloused and hard-hearted against the truths of Scripture, and you've been spending so much time with them, that you've sort of started to become calloused. You've sort of become hard like they are. And, and you've adopted their ideas, and you look at your life, you look at your faith, and it, it might feel like it's a sputtering airplane. When an airplane doesn't have enough fuel, the engine starts to stop. You know the old cartoons and stuff with a propeller-driven airplane, and it would bup, 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 and it would fall. I think there's some of us that feel like that. We're... We feel like everyone around us hates God, everyone around us doesn't believe, and it's wearing on us, it's taxing. And we're just waiting for the last little bit of our faith to drop because we feel like it's inevitable. You might be feeling like your relationship with God has been a one-way road for too long. Have you ever felt that way? You try to seek him, you try to pray, you try to pursue him, and you feel like you get no response, no answer to prayer, to the point that maybe you were just driving in your car and you screamed out, where are you right now? Are you even there? And you start to doubt his existence, or, or maybe not his existence, but his benevolence, his willingness to want to be good because of what you've been going through. You might be finding yourself in a battle with sin, dumbfounded that you could have done it again. And you know what the Bible says. You know that the Word of God is true. And you feel so brokenhearted because of what you've done that you might be coming to the conclusion, well, maybe I'm not saved. And it breaks your heart, but you don't know what else to conclude because this sin keeps showing its head, keeps coming up in your life. You might have had a spouse leave who you thought was a believer, turn their back on God and you. You might just be brokenhearted. I don't know what's going on this morning, but my guess is that some of you out there, some of you have friends who are in this place, if you're not in this place yourself. So this morning, it's... <laughs> It's a privilege to bring to you the Word of God, and I, I hope and pray that it's an encouragement. I want to pray for us real quick before we get going. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for all that you are. Thank you for the incredible privilege that we have to even approach you, to talk to you, to come to a place where we can worship, where we can hear about you. We can sing along with this great choir and get a glimpse of what it will be like to worship you in heaven. Lord, I pray that this morning that those who their faith has begun to dwindle, I pray that you would strengthen it. I pray that you would encourage it, that you would give them words to encourage their friends whose faith might be dwindling. I pray that the truth of your word would give us so much joy this morning that, that people would run out of here giggling at how good you are. 
Father, fill me. Let me speak your words this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, you ready? Here we go. Lord willing, I'm going to go from Hebrews 10.1 to Hebrews 12.2. I think there's about 100 verses in there. I don't know. We'll see. Lord willing. I might just get so caught up and excited about the first part that we might not make it any further. So before we do this, let me summarize the book of Hebrews for you real quickly. The book of Hebrews can be summed up in three words. You know that? You can get everything you need to know out of this book in three words. Though I would challenge you, I really would challenge you to read this book this week. If you read two chapters a week, you'll have it done this whole week. And it will bless you. But there's three words that will sum up the book of Hebrews, and they are this. Jesus is better. Can you remember that? Say it with me. Jesus is better. That's all you need to know. That's what the book of Hebrews says. Jesus is better. It's going to say he's better than a bunch of things, but the whole point, he is better. So what we're going to look at this morning, starting in chapter 10, is incredible. It's great. I'm excited. Here we go. Chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The law that it's talking about there is the Old Testament law, the rules that God gave to the people of Israel, the people that, um, that he called, that he made, the laws that he gave to them. It says those laws, they're only a shadow of the thing to come. I, wanna, I want you to think about this. Anyone ever been to the Statue of Liberty? Climbed up the 300 and however many stairs it is to the top, something like that. Anyone get claustrophobic in those stairs? They were pretty small. Anyways, if you went to the Statue of Liberty, you got off the boat and you're standing there. Statue of Liberty's right here. Sun's over there. And you get off the boat and there's a statue and you're like, wow, looking at its shadow. Wow, look at that. That's so big. Ah. Meanwhile, the statue is right there and all you are seeing is the shadow. You wasted the trip, right? I mean, I don't know how much the boat ride costs out there, probably 30 bucks or something, but I don't want to go on that boat ride to look at a shadow. I want the the real thing. I want to see the actual statue. I want to see the, the truth. What he says is that the law, the Old Testament law, it was the shadow. It, it, was, it was sort of, kind of, like what God really wanted. It was serving a purpose for a time, but it wasn't the reality of it. And it said it could never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So people would have to keep coming back because they hadn't been made perfect. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? At the time when the book of Hebrews was written, sacrifices were still being offered in the temple. The temple had not yet been destroyed. It was probably within a couple of years of the writing of this book in 70 AD that the temple was destroyed. This book was probably written about 67 AD. Sacrifices were still being offered at this point by the Jewish people. The Day of Atonement was something that God had set up. They would come, they would bring an animal, they would slaughter the animal, and that would cover their sins, but it did not remove their sins. 
the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, which they weren't because of the sacrifices, and would no longer have felt guilty for the reminder or for their sins. But those sins are an annual, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. They couldn't do it. They covered them for a while, but they couldn't take away the sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then he said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. What is that saying? What does that mean? It means this. God's desire from the beginning of time, he wanted fellowship with his people. Once he made it, he wanted fellowship with his people. He wanted intimacy and closeness. He, he just wanted to hang out. He wanted to be close, to be near. He wanted intimacy and fellowship. But sin came and sin interrupted that fellowship. Sin prevented that fellowship from continuing in the way that God had wanted to continue. So he added the law. And the Bible tells us that the law, it pointed out the depravity of men. As people would see the, the commandments, as they would see what was written in the Old Testament, in the Torah, as they would see these things, they were reminded of their sin. They were caused to understand just how guilty they were before God. The law was added and sin was increased because it was more obvious what sin was when it was clear. So God gave the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. He set this up as a way to cover, not remove, but to cover their sins. And every year they would have to come. Every, um, every year they would bring their animals and then the priests would have to slaughter these animals and give them to God. You just, you got to think of the priest. He sees you come and he sees you bringing your animal. You again? You're still doing that? Isn't that what you sacrificed for last time? The last 15 times you're still doing that? Every year, year after year after year, they were reminded of their sin. And to cover their sin, they had to kill these animals. So I ask you, was that what God wanted? Was that his heart? Was that his desire? Did God look down and go, great, now things have worked out what I want. Every year they feel so guilty about what they've done that they have to come and bring this animal and then this animal is killed. And then next year they're going to come, they're going to feel guilty again and bring this animal and it's killed. And next year they're going to come feel guilty again. Was that what God wanted for his people? No, he wanted fellowship. His heart was that he would just have fellowship with his people, that they would be intimate. So he sent Jesus. Let's keep reading in verse 8. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. So God set them up. God wanted them there for the time being. Then he said, Jesus, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, the will of God, we have been made holy 
through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I I don't think you got that because that's pretty good. This is the part that made me so excited this week. By that will, by the will of God, meaning when God finally got what he really wanted, we were made holy, have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It goes on, it says this, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's setting up a contrast here. He says, day after day, the priests are standing. Standing is the posture for a priest to do his work. Had to go to the people, get the animal, come back to the altar, do the cutting, the slicing, put it up there. He was moving around. The idea that the priests are standing means that there was still work to be done. I'm sure at the end of the day, the priests who had been on their feet a bunch were tired. I'm sure when they saw people coming back year after year, bringing their animals, I'm sure it wore them out at some point that they said, again? Gosh, we still need to be covered from this sin? So the priests are standing day after day. They're standing, meaning they still have all this work to do because the system that they are a part of was not taking away sin. It was only covering it up. It wasn't removing it. It was just throwing a little bit of dirt over it. It wasn't taking it away. So the priests are standing, verse 12, but when this priest, because Jesus has been painted as the great high priest, a better high priest, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, He waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. It says Jesus came, he showed up, he did what he had to do, and then he sat down. Here's Jesus. Well, I'm done. Just hanging out for a little bit. The priests, meanwhile, they're going back and forth, running all the time, constantly standing because they still have work to do, trying to cover the sins of people. But Jesus came and covered not covered, removed the sin of people for those who would believe. He took it away. Watch verse 14. I think this is the, probably the best verse in the whole Bible for a believer. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice, he did it. He showed up, did his work one time, and that covered it. From then on, it was covered. How does this apply to people who are struggling in faith? Well, we're going to get there, but I think there's a little hint. Look at this. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The idea there is sanctification. If you don't know what sanctification is, it is this. For anyone who gives themselves fully and completely to to Christ, trusts in him, the Bible says from that point, they are declared right before God, period. And it's done. But sanctification means that they will be continually growing to be more like Christ. We will be continually growing that we won't sin so much and we will start serving and loving and doing more. 
If we are still going to be growing in sanctification, meaning there's still going to be some sin in the life of a believer, but we have already been made perfect, what does that mean? One, it means that you don't need to go around feeling so distraught and guilty because you sinned after you accepted Christ. How much of us, how many of us have been beat up with the sin that we've done. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't repent. You shouldn't turn away from the things you've done after you've given your life to Christ. But here's what I am saying from the word of God. We have been made perfect in God's eyes, even though there's still some sin in our life. We've been made perfect. We, <laughs> are you kidding me? I get to stand before God who sees this stuff that goes on, who sees that I don't always live up to the expectation that I be perfect? God sees that and he's like, you're perfect. Do you, do you understand that? That's amazing. As a believer in Christ, my sins no longer prevent me from having intimacy with Christ. Usually we get that, we understand that. We think, okay, my sins before I gave my life to Christ, those ones, those aren't being held against me anymore. But now anytime I sin, oh, for the next week, I just, I know God's far away from me because of what I've done. I made, uh, it's hard. I've got to, uh, I need to go do something. I need to get back into his favor. No, you don't. You are already in the favor of God if you're a believer. Do you get that? I mean, that means that, that if I give my life to Christ and I'm going through my life and I'm trying to live for him and I'm trying to rely on the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to, to walk by faith and I mess up, I screw up, I fail. It means I don't have to live in this state of going, oh God, I'm, man, I wanted to be close to you this week. I'm going to have to spend the whole week praying, the whole week reading my Bible, and I'm going to have to help some old ladies across the road so that you can be good with me again. We can be close again. No. If I am a true believer in Jesus Christ from the time that I sin and I say, God, that wasn't what I want to do. I'm sorry. I've still got the intimacy with Christ. I'm still close to the Father. I don't think we can understand this because I know a lot of you had fathers who brought up everything that you had ever done wrong. I know a lot of you maybe have bosses or had a mother who would not let you forget. Remember the time when you were six? I was six. Well, I didn't like it, and I still remember it. A lot of us have been raised where people don't want to let us forget what we have done. They want to hold it against us. They want to say, well, you've got to fix it. You've got to take care of it. A lot of us have had fathers like that. If your father was like that, that makes it hard for you to understand what's being said here. Maybe you didn't even know your father. And so this concept is just completely foreign. But what Jesus did is that he showed up he lived perfectly. He died on the cross so that anyone who would believe in him, oh, and he rose again, by the way. It's a good part of the story. So that anyone who would believe in him is permanently standing in a right relationship with God, even though we are still being sanctified. 
Even though there's still some sins that the Spirit is at work trying to get me to, to rid myself of those. He's helping me rid myself. Even though he's showing me how to be more Christ-like, I still mess up and fail. But that doesn't affect my standing with God. Amen? It's incredible. When I sin in my self-righteousness, I say, well, God, I'm sorry. I, I, give me some way to work this off. Let me do so. Let me work this off so that we can be right again. And he goes, shh. Jesus already did all the work. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He already did all the work. And I say in my self-righteousness, well, God, that's not fair. Punish me, beat me, do something to, to, to release me of this. He says, I already had Jesus beaten for you. And I say, no, no, that doesn't make sense. What about all my horrific sin? You've seen all my horrific sin. What about that? And he says this, look at verse 17, starting 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. First he says, this is my covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So in my self-righteousness, after I've said, God, give me some way to work this off, he says, Jesus already did all the work. You're close to me. You get to enjoy this intimacy. This is what I want. And I say, no, you don't understand. My sin is bad. Beat me. Do something. He says, I already had Jesus beaten for you. So you and I can be close. You're there. We're in this. You're in my presence. The temple curtain was torn. We're not prevented from being close to God anymore. And so I say, but God, what about all my horrific sin? You've seen it. What about everything that I've done? And he says to me, I will remember your sins and lawless acts no more. I say, God, there's got to be something I can do. He says, Jesus did it. I say, well, then beat me, punish me. He says, Jesus was beaten. Jesus was punished. And I say, well, what about my sin? He goes, I don't remember. What sin? How cool is that? That's the God we serve. That's the Father we get to experience. That's the one we get to stand for before. One of my old pastors, I, I just heard a message, and he explained it like this. His daughter came home with an F on her report, on her uh, a test. She had an F on her test, and he was not happy with that. He, he knew that she understood that in that family you don't get an F. And so she came home, she told her mom, but she was more worried about telling her dad. So dad walks in the door, she comes up to him, hands him the test and says, what are you going to do to me? He looks at the test. He says, I'm going to take you out for dinner to your favorite restaurant. And then we're going to go to a movie and we're going to see any movie you want to see. And after that, we're going to go get ice cream. She's like, wait, wait what? But I, I got an F on the test and I know that's not okay. And he says, but Daddy has been a bad man. You need to understand this. And God has been gracious with me. So I want you to understand that grace of God. So even though you messed up, I'm just going to go out and love you. So they went out, had a great time. She gets to school the next day. Her friends are like, what'd your dad do? She says, he took me out for dinner. We went to a movie. We got ice cream. And they all said, oh, I want your dad. 
And as my pastor was saying this story, he goes, isn't that the kind of God that our culture would want? Not a God who year after year is constantly trying to remind them of their sins, but a God who once for all time paid it and got that out of the way so they could just be close. Isn't that a God that our culture would want? One who just wants to live in this intimacy, this closeness? He's paid it all. Our sins and our lawless acts says he doesn't even remember them. Are you kidding? You don't remember them? I remember them. And as I think about that, I realize that my conscience, my guilt is usually the only thing that can get in the way. Because Jesus says he doesn't remember them. And my conscience and my guilt are tied with God's knowledge. I feel guilty because I know that God knows what I have done. My conscience is guilty because God's law has been put on my heart and I know it wasn't right and I know what has been done. My conscience and God's understanding are are bonded together. And so when I come to him and I say, but I sinned, I knew it was wrong, I'm a believer, I accepted your grace and I sinned, he looks at me and says, so? Not that it doesn't matter, not that we should go on sinning so that grace could increase, but he says, it's already been covered. It's already been paid for. We just get to be close. It's amazing. Even as a believer, when I sin, it doesn't change my perfect standing before God. Do you get that this morning? Are you living in a life of guilt where every time you sin, you go, oh, God's going to be mad at me. He's going to hate me. Ah, I can't believe I did this. I knew it was wrong. I slipped up. No, that is not how God feels according to his word. He feels love for you. He feels that everything that needed to be done has already been done. And we just get to hang out with him in his presence and enjoy him. That's beautiful. Y'all aren't laughing. I don't know what's wrong. That's crazy to me. So we're going to go on and look at this because after he gives them this beautiful truth, the author of Hebrews moves on. He says, Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. He goes, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. When the curtain was ripped, I read one commentary this week that said it was probably the time of the evening sacrifices, which probably meant there was a lot of people there. They knew that what was behind that curtain, no one saw. They knew that a priest went back there once a year, and that was it. And so they're sitting there giving giving their uh, offerings, and this curtain rips because Jesus just died on the cross, and all of a sudden all these people are sitting there like, what's going on? I'm looking at that and I'm not dead. I'm seeing what's behind that curtain, which was representative of the presence of God, and I'm not dead. Are you kidding me? (laughs) What just happened? This doesn't make sense. When that curtain was ripped, it was God's way of saying, you now get to be permanently close to me because I am your, Jesus is a great high priest. You don't have to go through all these sacrifices anymore that the Jewish people had to go through. You don't have to try and do something visible to be reminded of all your sin. You just get to enjoy this closeness with him if you believe. 
We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. I don't know about you, but the times in my life where I have doubted my faith are the times where I have struggled with sin. If I can be real honest, Bible college was a hard time for me because I was getting all this information. And there was still a lot of sin in my life. Not that I was living okay with my sin. I, was, I hated it. But I kept losing the battles. I kept falling in. I kept giving in to temptation. And it would destroy me. It would tear me up. And I would go, maybe I'm just not really saved. No, he has made perfect those whom are being sanctified. I get to stand before God as perfect right now in full assurance of my faith, meaning I don't have to look at my life. I don't have to look at the fact that I have offended God, that I've dragged his name through the mud and think that he's got to be mad at me because of that. I simply get to go, he covered once for all my sin. He took them away and that's why he sat down because his work was done. Do you realize that Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross every single day because his people sin? He already covered it. He paid for it. He took it away so that we could be close. Let us draw near to God in a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It sounds like baptism. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. When you doubt your faith, you need to remember that it's not about your ability to maintain your faith. It's about what Jesus has already done that paid the price so that your faith could be strong, so that you could be close to him. What a relief. It's not up to you to hold it up if you're a true believer. He already did something that covered it all. Let us hold unswervingly then to the hope we profess because he is faithful. God is not going to turn back on what he's done. There's not going to be some point, as we'll see in a minute, where God says, oh, uh, Jesus' sacrifice, that was pretty good for a while, but now I've got to give you something else that's better than that. There will not be that point. God is faithful. What happened with Jesus is going to last for you and me if we believe. You almost not had your coffee, huh? This is exciting stuff to me. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It says, if your faith is struggling, there's an element where you need to have fellowship. Let us not give up meeting together. Let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. When was the last time you went to a Christian friend who was struggling and said, don't you get it? Jesus already did everything so that you can be close to God permanently. When you put your faith in him, when you believed, from now on, you're permanently close to him. That's an encouraging thing for me because I beat myself up. I say, I can't believe I did that again. God says, yeah, we're working on that, but we're still tight. Wow. Wow. Anyone whose name is written in the book of life will not be thrown into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20. 
Revelation 20 talks about books and another book. It talks about books, many books, that had written down everything that men had ever done. And it talks about one book in which the names of those who believe are written in it. And that anyone whose name was written in the book will not be thrown into the lake of fire. After men are judged by what they've done according to the books, anyone who is in the book of life will be saved. At the point that you give your life to Christ and trust in him and believe in him, your name is written in that book if you are a true believer. And from then on, even though there's sin, even though there's mistakes, even though you have doubts, from then on you get to remain in a constant right standing with your Father in heaven. But there are some who don't quite see it that way, who don't quite understand that. Look at verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after, the, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. I always read that verse and I thought, so the times that I've sinned after I'm a Christian, there's no sacrifice left for that. Uh, that seems like what it's saying. And I've beaten myself up and I thought, well, yeah, when I accepted Christ, I knew that he covered everything from before that point. But if there's no sacrifice that remains, if we deliberately keep on sinning, well then... I mean, to some sense, all my sin that I've done has been willful. To some extent, I, I wanted it more than I wanted to obey God, so that's willful. Later in Hebrews, he's going to say, you've not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. And I go, yep. If it comes to sinning or bleeding, I'm going to sin. Because I'm human. But that's not what this verse means. That is not what this verse means. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In the old covenant, you could be killed for giving into idolatry for going against the law of Moses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as, unholy, as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall hand the, into the hands of the living God. So we read this, and many of us were probably raised with this verse, and we think, well, if I sin after I'm a believer, there's no sacrifice left for that. I don't know how God's going to deal with that. And we feel guilty, and that's why we say, God, punish me, beat me, do something. That's not what it's talking about. If you understand the, or the original languages here, this was written in Greek, and what it says there, if we deliberately keep on sinning, it's the idea of conscious, ongoing rejection of God. It's not talking about a believer. But wait, it says we. Yes, it does say we, if we deliberately keep on sinning. Look at verse 39, though. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Verse 35, he says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Verse 32, he says, remember those earlier days. You put up with a lot. So he makes this case saying, if we deliberately keep on sinning, that's a hypothetical we. It's not talking about a believer. If you don't believe me, I looked in a bunch of commentaries. There's some people who try and go, ah, maybe it's a believer like this or that. John Piper, John MacArthur, and many others believe this is not talking about a believer. 
They believe that this is the kind of person who is talked about in Matthew 13. You remember the parable of the, uh, the sower and the soil? When Jesus is explaining it, he says it like this. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. There was a soil, a seed cast on four different kinds of soil. It says, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed that was sown along the path. It said birds ate it up. They didn't even get it. They didn't even understand God. Look at these next two, though. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. For a while, he received the message of Christ with joy. That means he was probably in church. He probably heard things. He probably made a profession of faith and said, wow, this is great. This is cool. But when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Yeah, it's great when I'm at church. It's so much fun. I love it. I love being there. But I get out around my friends and it's not so great anymore. And in fact, you know what? Uh, that's, that's really the life that I'm going to live. That's what that person says. Look at the next one. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. The worries of life, it choked him out. The, the faith grew, the seed there grew, but the thorns grew next to it and choked it out. There are some people who look like they're Christians, meaning they are part of the visible church. But their life does not remain. They don't keep it. Now, I thought God was able to save every believer. He is if you're a true believer. That's everything we've been talking about, that his blood covered it. But a true believer will continually be repenting. A true believer will never get to a point where they say, you know what, I learned, I heard, I saw some things, I saw that God was good. But being my own God, man, that's really good. A true believer will never say that. A true believer will constantly be turning back to God. You know, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, it talks about this. And it's this really hard passage. It says it's impossible to return to the faith. Those who have tasted the good things of God and have fallen away. It's the same idea. Somebody who was in the church for a while, somebody who made a profession of faith and then said, you know what? God had some good things to offer, but I think I can get better things for myself. And they deliberately, willfully turn away. That is what it's talking about there. So he goes on and says, remember those early days. He says, don't throw away your confidence. He who is coming will not delay, but the righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, meaning if someone shrinks back, I will not be pleased. If you maintain your relationship with God in which you are repenting, in which you keep coming to him, you have the assurance that you are living in a perfect standing with him. It's beautiful. If somebody decides that as good as they saw God was, they don't need that, well, then the Bible's not as, uh, not as hopeful. It's not as happy for that person. Because if you have tasted what God has done, if you have logically understood what Jesus did and how he died on the cross and how that covered you and you say you gave your life to him and then you decided you want to take it back, you were never really saved. But if you keep, even though there's sin, if you keep pressing on, even when you doubt, if you keep pressing on, you get to live in perfect union with God 
forever on this earth, even when you sin, even when you mess up. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. You've got to read scripture in context. If you don't, you're going to read that part about deliberately sinning. You're going to think it's talking about you. It is not talking about you, true believer. It says, for we are not of those who shrink back. God is holding you. If he's holding you, you're going to keep repenting, but there is going to be some sin, but he is holding you. And then in chapter 11, it goes through and it gives us all these beautiful pictures about faith. And it gives us all these pictures about people and what their faith looked like. And many of us probably know the beginning of it. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But as you read through this, as you see everyone that it talks about, you see that their faith was being certain of what they hoped for in the future. As I was going through this, I saw all this. I was reading all these people, and, and it talks about how they didn't always receive all of what they were promised. Meaning they held on to something that was in the future that was so good that they were willing to put up with whatever was going on. Whatever trials were coming, whatever, uh, whatever was happening, whatever doubts, whatever sin, whatever, they put up with it. And they didn't even have Jesus. These are all Old Testament people. But their faith had a future element to it. After I found that out, I was so excited. Like, oh, faith is being convinced of something that is going to happen in the future. And walking by faith means holding on to what is going to happen in the future and living today because of that. Even when I feel like God's not responding to my prayers or I don't feel him or, or uh, I see that I messed up, I sinned, or I see that there's hard things going on. Walking by faith means I hold on to the future promise of heaven. And I don't get frustrated, worn down, and discouraged saying, God, where are you today? I don't know if you're here anymore. Walking by faith means that you hold on to that future promise. John Piper says it like this, belief, belief that glorifies God is future-oriented. It is a banking on the promises of God. All the promises of God were purchased for believing sinners by an act that happened in the past, namely by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But God-glorifying belief doesn't merely stare at those acts. It stands on them and then looks forward to all the promises Jesus bought for us, and it banks on the hope the promises moves out in a life of faith. If you really believe that you are living for eternity, for heaven, how would that change how you live your life? What would you be willing to do? Say, you know what? Doesn't matter. If I don't have as much stuff, if I don't have as much fun, if I don't have as much comfort, it doesn't matter because I want to live my life waiting for eternity and banking on it so much that it doesn't matter what happens here. It's a heartfelt hope on the promises of God. You read all through, you see all those people in chapter 11, you see all their faith, the thing that they held on to, and you get to 12 and it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. He says, because of everything we've seen of what Jesus has done and how it is permanent by nature, how it covers not just the sin before I accepted him, but the mistakes I make after I give my life to him. He says, because of that, therefore, since we've got all these witnesses that held on to a faith that was in the future, they didn't even get everything that they were promised, but they kept pursuing. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You remember in Matthew 13, the passage about the soil? What was it that choked out those people? I'm going to read it again. The one who received... 
It's the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. When he says throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles, think about that. Materialism might be killing your faith. You might be holding on to the things that you have, to the comfort that you've tried to make for yourself, and that might be more important to you than God. And if it is, you're never going to enjoy him like he wants you to. You're never going to enjoy that fellowship, that closeness. If all life is to you is how much can I get and how much fun can I have, you're going to be let down. I've done a lot of crazy things in my life, like extreme sports. I've jumped out of airplanes. I've ridden snowboards off small cliffs. I've surfed. I've mountain biked down ski hills all to try and get an adrenaline rush. I've, I've had some really nice stuff. I've been able to own some very nice quality things. And with every one of those things, you do it because you're like, I want something that's just going to light me up. And with every one of those things that I have done, there comes a point where I go, is that, is that all? I, I, honestly, one of the most heartbreaking things for me was after I went skydiving. You hear people talk about, oh, that's crazy. Why are you going to jump out of a perfectly good airplane? It can land. Just stay in it. Well, it's for a rush. So I went skydiving, and I was like, this is going to be great. I get up there. We're strapped up. We get to the door, and you got this guy behind you, so you're not even in control. And uh, he gets you up to the door, and he's like, you ready? And you're like, woo, let's go. And he pushes you out, and you're flying. And I'm like, It's windy. I can see the horizon. Ground doesn't really look like it's getting any closer right now, but it's windy. Gosh, is, is this all it is? I, I thought there was going to be something more. With so many of the possessions I've owned, I've thought, this is going to make me happy. If I finally get to a place where I can afford this and I get that and I obtain that, it's going to be happy. I'm going to be happy. It doesn't always work either. A lot of times after I've gotten something that I worked so hard for, saved for, went into debt for, whatever it was, I get it and I get to play with it and I'm so excited. And then I go, is that, is that all? Is that all it has to offer? That's kind of disappointing. But when you understand what Jesus did, that never disappoints you. You have a perfect standing with God from now on. So he says, let us throw off any sin that entangles. Stop living your life for yourself is what that means. Stop living your life for your hobbies, for your possessions, for whatever you think is going to make it good and start living your life for God. Take steps of faith in which you get out of your comfort zone and you do things that only he could accomplish. You say, I don't know if this is going to work, but I think this is what God wants me to do, so I'm going to do it. And watch what he does. Throw off any sin that hinders, everything that hinders, any sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You've got to run with perseverance. If your faith maintains till the end, meaning if you keep repenting, you keep turning to him, you've got this assurance that you are saved, that you have a full, uh, full assurance of your hope. Jude 22 and 23 says this, be merciful to those who doubt. There's some people around us, some people whose faith is dwindling. They just need you to be merciful to them. You don't need to beat them up over what they've done. 
I, I do that sometimes as a pastor. I see kids who seem like they don't care. And sometimes I, if I'm being honest, I beat them up over what they've done. Wouldn't it be better if we focused on what Jesus has done and how that covered it? Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. You might have a friend who is struggling in their faith. They might need you to come alongside them, to walk with them, to encourage them, maybe even to rebuke them in love so that their faith remains. And then finally it says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The final thing I would say, if you are struggling in your faith or you know someone who is struggling, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And if you understand that what he did covers you from the time you believe forward, it'll blow you away. And, and you're not going to trample on it either. Because Titus 2 says that the grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The more you understand that God has done it all, that Jesus paid everything that ever has to be paid for your sin, the more you don't want to do it. Think of Peter, Matthew, uh, sorry, Peter, when he walked on water, when he kept his eyes on Jesus, he stayed. When he looked at himself, his situation, his problems, that's when he started to sink. Let me read you one final verse, and then I want to pray for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the word of God to you this morning. Take his yoke upon you. It's easy. Wouldn't you like to have a father who didn't constantly remind you of every bad thing you've done, but one who paid the price and then just wants to be intimately close with you? Doesn't that sound good? If you've never given your life to Christ, I hope and pray that this morning you would see everything that he wants to do for you, that you would go, wow, that's the kind of love that I want. That's the kind of love worth finding. And I pray that you would come up here and that you would talk to me, talk to one of the other pastors. We'll tell you about this Jesus. It's incredible. Our Father in heaven, how great it is that we get to maintain this right relationship with you, this right standing. How great it is that my sin, even after I've believed, does not prevent me from being close to you, but that I get to stay close because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for your love. Thank you for doing it all, because I'm way too weak to do any of it. I pray that if there's anyone here, Father, who has not given their life to you yet, I pray that they would see you as desirable this morning, that they would let you be the God of their life instead of being the God of their own life. I pray that your cross would free them of their sin, free them of their guilt and their shame, and that they would simply be able to live in a right relationship with you. And Father, if there are any who are doubting, any whose faith is dwindling, any who have been discouraged because of the sin in their life, I pray that they would cling to these truths and that it would light up their whole week. I pray that they would read through Hebrews this week and get as much joy out of it as I got. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he's done. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.